재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 It is time for International News Digest getting some analysis on some of the uh, top stories from uh, all over the world and uh, really the timing of this segment right now is uh, again another shocking development in Belgium in Brussels uh, the city was rocked by explosions affecting both the airport and the subway systems according to AP at least 13 people dead uh, many more injured the uh, terror alert has been lifted to its highest level uh, we're going to be talking about this uh, aspect of the, the war against terrorism in Europe as it stands right now. And uh, to help us out, we're very pleased to have joining us from Nanyang Technological Institute uh, University, uh, Professor Rohan Gunaratna. Hello. Hi, this is Rohan Gunaratna. Professor Rohan uh, Gunaratna, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I know we had prepared a list of questions for you uh, in terms of what's going on in Europe right now, but can we just first get your thoughts on uh, what we know so far with this uh, terrorist attack in Belgium, apparent terrorist attack in Belgium, these two explosions in the airport and uh, the subway systems? Uh, This morning at 8 a.m. in Belgium, in the capital of Brussels, and also in the main airport in Belgium, the terrorists attacked. They attacked uh, the airport uh, area where uh, the people gather for departures, and it was a suicide attack. There was also gunfire, and uh, there are 13 people who were killed. And more than 35 people were injured. Similarly, there was a nearby, uh, there was a metro station in Brussels that was quite close to the EU institutions that was also attacked. In many ways, this attack demonstrates a continuity of the terrorist threat the world is facing, but specifically what Europe is facing. Uh, Brussels was the main venue for the terrorists to plan and prepare attacks against France. And today we have seen that the terrorists have attacked um, Brussels itself. And certainly this calls for greater cooperation between the European countries so that terrorists do not use each other's countries to attack target countries. Originally, uh, our first topic was going to be focused on the uh, capture of the alleged terror mastermind of the Paris attacks, Salah Abdeslan. Uh, a lot of cooperation with between French and Belgian intelligence authorities. It is very difficult to separate these two. It does, I guess, the assumption for a lot of people would be that these two events are related. Would you agree? Yes, it is the same terrorist network that has operated both in France and in Belgium, and you can see very clearly that this particular attack came four days after uh, the arrest of the mastermind who was in Belgium, and it also demonstrates the mentality, the mindset of the terrorists. They do not want to give up. They believe that this is uh, their God's duty, and they believe that if they die in these attacks that they will go to heaven. So as a result of that, they have a lot of motivation to fight back. 
Now, we know that there's been a lot of debate in Europe over this open-door refugee policy. It's been found that Abdeslan apparently uh, was pretending to be a Syrian refugee. Do you, f- do you feel there will be a backlash now on issues like uh, allowing in refugees, as well as sort of this uh, overriding, you can call it fear, but now some people say it may be a xenophobic a reaction to uh, people who are Muslims or from other parts of the world? More than any other country or grouping of countries, the Europeans have been very generous in welcoming the suffering Syrian refugees. But the support for more refugees to enter Syria has diminished after the Paris attacks, and it continues to decline. What is What we are likely to see after the Brussels attacks is that there will be less support, less advocates of those who want to enter Europe. So my own view is that uh, the European countries that were very enthusiastic and very well-meaning to receive these refugees now will have deep reservations. Now, this is, of course, affecting many countries, not just France, not just Belgium, the entirety of Europe. I do want to get your thoughts briefly on what's going on in uh, Turkey as well. Uh, That country was rocked by another bomb explosion. Uh, This uh, took the lives of four people. It's the sixth suicide bombing since last summer. Uh, Do you believe the recent string of attacks in Turkey have raised questions about their ability to uh, protect itself from uh, their neighboring country, Syria, and sort of the spillover effects of that war? Turkey is the gateway to Syria. The Turkish authorities in the first phase of the war did not do what was required to control the flow of foreign fighters to Syria. But today, Turkey has decided to take decisive action against IS, and IS has targeted Turkey. So Turkey has suffered as a result of the stand it has taken against uh, the Islamic State, the terrorist group in Syria. It is very likely that Turkey will suffer even more. There will be more attacks in Turkey because it's very difficult during this period to attack, to, to prevent terrorist attacks in uh, Turkey. My view is that the threat will increase and Turkey will have to play an even more active role in the coalition against the Islamic State. And there is also the risk of a spillover effect from Turkey uh, into Europe as well through that corridor, right? Yes, Turkey is crucial for the security and stability of the world because Turkey is the main gateway. Turkey is also the main gate for Syrian refugees to enter Europe. Turkey is also the main gateway for terrorists who are leaving Syria to travel around the world. For example, in Asia, we saw Mehdi Nimochi, a French terrorist who went to Syria trained, and he left Turkey and came to uh, Thailand and Malaysia, and he transited through Singapore before he entered Europe to go to Brussels and attack the uh, museum, the Jewish museum there. So 
we have seen that the main route that the terrorists are using is Turkey. Now, you mentioned Turkey did not make the right decisions. It appears that Ankara's foreign policy has basically uh, angered everybody, whether it's Russia, the United States, uh, uh, the Kurds. Um, do you feel that uh, there is a basic flaw in how they have carried out their foreign policy? Turkey has changed. Turkey initially was very, uh, very neutral. Turkey, Turkey did not uh, stop IS. But now Turkey has decided to fight IS and Turkey has to, uh, will, will as a result suffer from IS attacks. But that is the right thing to do. The right thing is to fight IS. Okay, we shall leave it there. Uh, Professor Gunaratna, thank you so much for joining us, especially uh, in light of these uh, breaking news developments coming out of Belgium. Appreciate your analysis, sir. Thank you. All the best to you. That was uh, Professor Rohan Gunaratna from the S. Rajaratnan School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Uh, we've been going over the concerns in Europe, certainly uh, even more compounded after the developments today with those uh, bombings in Belgium. We're going to focus now on U.S. foreign policy, particularly this landmark uh, development in diplomacy with President Barack Obama visiting Cuba. This is the first time since 1928 when uh, Calvin Coolidge visited the country. A lot of implications here. And to help us out with the analysis, joining us from the University of Cambridge, American history professor Andrew Preston. Hello. Hi. Professor, thank you for joining us. Uh, First, your overall assessment of uh, President Obama's visit to uh, Cuba and what he's trying to accomplish. Well, thanks for having me. And um, it is uh, indeed a momentous occasion. It's uh, I mean, it's absolutely stunning if you'd said uh, even just a few years ago that an American president would be, even last year, that an American president would be visiting Havana and meeting uh, one of the Castro brothers and discussing a new era and a new future for U.S.-Cuban relations. It would have just been, uh, well, people would have laughed at you that, that, that this was possible. So it, it's, a, it's an incredible moment. Um, What it means for the future is anyone's guess, but I think Obama is probably right to be optimistic that there might not be uh, any sort of sudden upturn in U.S.-Cuban relations and that everything will change, but certainly that it's pointing in the right direction. Certainly there are many facets to this. There's an economic element. There are uh, various companies, uh, for example, Airbnb, that are uh, very eager to tap into this uh, market. Uh, there are diplomatic issues. There are security issues at at play here. But uh, the critics, and I suppose we can say uh, a lot of the critics on the right, especially a lot of the uh, Cuban expats who live in, including namely some of the uh, presidential uh, candidates uh, right now, currently uh, Ted Cruz as well, but the uh, the conservative side always argues that you have to address uh, these issues like human rights. Um, the, there was a fascinating press conference with uh, Obama and Raul Castro where uh, they were taking live questions from reporters. You could see the discomfort and the, the awkwardness there. Uh, how, this is a very difficult line to, to balance, right, as far as human rights in Cuba and what Obama is trying to accomplish? Yeah, that, that press conference was something else. Yeah. Um, and those little moments, as you, as you said, where Raul Castro was being asked to, Andrew, uh, to answer questions from people like Andrea Mitchell, um, and Obama was encouraging him, sort of almost giving him a lesson in press conference yeah. uh, etiquette and, and what to do. 
uh, was incredible. Um, I think, I mean, on, on the, I mean, human rights is, of course, one of the big issues, and that's going to be the big thorny one. I think if what Obama's betting is that this will be the beginning of a new relationship that will slowly over time bear fruit, if you're a critic of the, of the Obama policy and if you're a critic of the Cuban regime and you're expecting an immediate trade-off of opening up of uh, relations between Washington and Havana to immediately lead to... Um, you know, uh, a, a completely new direction in terms of human rights from Havana. Uh, then, of course, you're going to be critical of this uh, of this deal. Um, I think what Obama is betting on is that it's going to create some momentum that, in itself, will be unstoppable. Maybe not momentum that's going to see immediate change, but momentum where people are going to embrace this new relationship, see it as inevitable. Because I think a lot of people do see some kind of change as inevitable. And then because of that momentum, it'll be hard to basically go back to something where you have a total uh, shutoff, a total embargo, and over time, relations will improve, and over time, uh, uh, Havana's human rights record will improve. And, and so I, I, what you're implying is, of course, just like the ACA or the um, Obamacare, as people call it, it's going to be very difficult to walk that back no matter who gets elected to office, uh, even, of course, uh, seeing those recent Supreme Court decisions. The same thing with this uh, current Cuba policy for Obama. And just like exactly. Nixon, um, of course, who's had his legacy tainted by other issues, but his landmark visit to China, is this going to be an important aspect of Obama's legacy? Oh, absolutely. I think so. I think this, this along with the Iran deal, um, are going to be, well, it was a good analogy, actually, to Nixon in China. You're absolutely right. Um, and just like Nixon going to China, which also had its critics at the time, including Ronald Reagan, who became president mm-hmm. nine years later after Kissinger's trip and eight years after, uh, after Nixon's uh, trip, um, that created a, mem- a momentum of its own. It, you know, at the time, in 1971-72, people thought, uh, that it was about time that the U.S. did something different towards China, and also that China did something different towards the U.S., and that they don't just continue this long-standing uh, Cold War. And I'm sure Obama is making that same uh, that same kind of bet. And it and it will create, as you said, it will create a reality of its own that's going to be very very difficult for uh, a president of whichever party uh, to walk back. This, the sanctions, lifting the sanctions, lifting the embargo, is a different story if Republicans maintain these large majorities. Uh, in Congress, because right now I don't think there's a whole lot of appetite for right. lifting the embargo right away. But but who knows? You know, if there if if over the next year nothing really dramatically bad happens between U.S.-Cuban relations, if the drift keeps happening towards uh, you know towards better relations, then the embargo uh, might be the next thing to go. Let's turn to another issue, uh, another aspect of Obama's foreign policy. And, of course, this is directly related to our listeners here in Korea. And, of course, some people say this is a false equivalency. But uh, you look at Cuba, and sometimes the argument is also made. You don't like dictators in China. You don't like uh, dictators or a monarchy in Saudi Arabia, but you still do business with them. Why not North Korea? Uh, Can you just explain why it is a different situation in terms of trying to engage with Pyongyang? Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be something if uh, any U.S. president, certainly Obama, after dealing with Iran and Cuba, could do something uh, with North Korea and could could sort of get some movement in a positive direction there? Um, I mean, my own sense is that uh, North Korea is just a com- just a you know, it's operating on a totally different register, and it's just a completely different uh, regime. With Cuba, it was pretty clear that Havana was interested in a new relationship. Um, as we saw with the press conferences, you mentioned 
you know, it might take some nudging. It might mm. take some some new thinking on the part of, of Raúl Castro and the regime and the government uh, in Cuba. But there is a desire for a new relationship, and um, there is a you know there is there is definitely a hankering for change in Cuba. And I'm, I just don't see that in North Korea uh, right now. The the regime in North Korea benefits from this um, indefinite standoff, and it's not really in their interest to. Um, to move to a new relationship with right. the United States or with South Korea, and you could say that it's perpetuating its rule because of this, because of this standoff. Kind of in a way, the Castros used to be able to bolster their own support in Cuba because of U.S. opposition. But with the collapse of uh, Venezuela and the collapse of oil prices, and Venezuela stopped being Cuba's sponsor. Uh, before that, with the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union stopped being Cuba's sponsor. Cuba now is kind of isolated, and mm-hmm. it needs it needs friends and it needs something new from the United States and. As long as China isn't willing to push North Korea in a new direction, then I'm just not sure what right. kind of, you know, what sort of incentive there is for Pyongyang to, to, to um, not even normalize relations, but to move to some sort of new relationship. Bottom line, I think you're making the bold assertion that you don't envision Obama and Kim Jong-un to stand before a press conference and take follow-ups and questions from Andrea Mitchell. I think that's that's right. (laughs) Well, okay, there's one argument, though, because a lot of people have said, look, this decades-long embargo of Cuba, what was the effect? Did it achieve the aims of American security policymakers? People will say maybe not. Well, with North Korea, a lot of people also say, look, these continuous sanctions, this uh, punishing for their provocations through economic means does not seem to have any effect on the regime's behavior. Uh, There is a legitimate debate there, right? Yeah, I think there's absolutely a a legitimate debate. Um, I I wish I had the answer as to what to do with North Korea. If I had that answer, I... I'd be uh, I'd be in a much more powerful position than I am teaching history um, right now because that is a that's a tough nut to crack. I mean, it's I think it's I think it's indisputable that the embargo against Cuba um, was perpetuated for so long because of the needs of American domestic politics, and that Obama has taken a risk, but not as great a risk as previous presidents um, would have taken, just because the domestic political situation is changing. Generations, older generations, who are much more anti-Castro. Um, are mellowing or are not in such positions of power. And, and so that dynamic is, has been really important. But the embargo did keep the Castros in power. It gave them a way to legitimate their rule in a way that um, you could say uh, that North Korea does with the, with the sanctions against North Korea and isolation against North Korea that keeps uh, the Kims and the, you know, this family dynasty that, keep, that has kept them in power and continues to keep them in power. But the, the differences between Cuba and North Korea or between North Korea and most other countries, I think, are just so profound that um, I'm not sure doing, you know, that the lessons you could learn from Cuba necessarily will yeah. easily translate uh, over to North Korea. I kind of hope that they, they, they would be because that gives, you know, some sense of optimism for what could happen on the Korean Peninsula. But um, I'm just not sure that we're going to be able to translate anything that we get in Cuba over to Korea. I think that's an assertion that a lot of people uh, would agree with. Professor Preston, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your insights. No, thanks for having me.